0: You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. I want you to, (sighs) I want you to uh, tell the person beside you the title of my sermon this morning. Very charismatically, very very uh, confidently, if you will, let's be a seeker-sensitive church. <laughs> I, hear, I hear the nervous laughs uh, out here. Uh, you know, don't worry, we're going to get to it. We're going to get to it. I already see Elder Benji's eye twitching, and Elder Joel is already scheduling a, a meeting with me. Let's have a talk, Pastor uh, but before we get into it, we do have some exciting announcement. This past week, uh, a few of us, myself, the elders, uh, and uh, Deacon uh, uh, Darnell went over to uh, the sort of the Credit Valley Association of Feb Central, the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists, for their first session of this uh, this, this season of their uh, year, and and we plus life has been successfully inducted into. Fellowship of Evangelical Baptists as a result of that. There was a vote that took place. And and, and honestly, we, we praise God for, for this opportunity. And uh, the, the pastors there, after hearing our story and seeing even our, our, our documents and, and whatnot, they were very much encouraged at the work of God in our church, at the life of our church. They really see growth and, and um, very encouraged about um, the way that God has been bringing our community from just, again, just a, a Bible study group in the basement full of Bible nerds to where we are today. Um, so we praise God for that opportunity and, um, and, and what we're going to be doing in partnership with FEB we're moving, in the, moving forward in the future. Now let's get to our sermon this morning. I'm sure there's a lot of questions and nervous reactions to it. We are picking up in our Gospel of John series in chapter 9. We are in the middle of this interrogation of this man who was born blind, healed by Jesus, and who is now able to see. Last week, despite the What we talked about last week, despite the evidence and even the witnesses that this man brings forward in regards to Christ's power and his divinity, the Pharisees, who's interrogating this man, still reject him, reject what he's speaking about. And from there, we pulled in that sermon, the tactics of unbelievers. They dispose of common sense, despite the the logical reasoning that this man brings, and even the others, the other witnesses in our passage brings the, the, the Pharisees discard all of that common sense to reject the truth. And that's another thing that we saw happen in, that, in the early parts of this chapter, is that the Pharisees deny the truth completely. They had to bring in the, the parents of this blind man, or this once blind man, and to ask them specifically, is this your son? Was he actually born blind? And when the parents said, yep, that's our son, they still said, okay, you say he was blind. Sure. They deny the truth. And of course, at the very end, we see how unbelievers often demand compliance. If you don't comply with what we believe, if you don't deny what you believe, then you'll be excommunicated as we saw in our passage today. This man was kicked out of the synagogue. And we see this, as we mentioned, in our world today. But this week, as we, we, we look at the, the response of this healed man, the plan for, for me, at least, as I was preparing uh, chapter 9 and what we are going to talk about a, a few weeks ago, the plan for, for, for our passage this morning was to talk about the tact of believers, how believers are supposed to respond and the kind of attitude we are to have towards the tactics of unbelievers. So last week was the tactics of unbelievers. This week was supposed to be the tact of believers. But in my study and preparation for this past, in this past week, I realized that this man that was born blind and healed by Jesus is not a believer. And so at least not yet. We do see in our passage in verse 35, look at that with me of our passage, We do see in our passage that this man eventually does come to faith, that he does believe in Jesus. It says in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I might believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe and he worshiped him. So this guy eventually does come to faith. He does believe in Christ. But in between verse one and verse thirty-four, he doesn't know Christ yet. Remember, he was blind when Jesus came and approached him. He has yet to put his faith in anyone or anything. He just simply knew that he was born blind, and now he sees. And so, really, in unpacking that or this passage, we can't really pull from his response to the Pharisees on how believers ought to respond to unbelievers because, again, this man is not a believer yet. Yet what's interesting is that despite not being a believer in our passage yet in his response to the Pharisees, this healed man answers with great insight. Look at verse 30 with me. After some amusing banter between him and the Pharisees, I love it. He, he says, what, why do you want me to explain it? Do you want to be disciples of Jesus too? There's a lot of sarcasm in there that I absolutely love. Uh, but in, after all of that banter, there is verse 30. This man answered the Pharisees once more. Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This healed man is concluding on these divine truths and Christ's identity, despite not meeting Jesus personally, or or, well, physically in a sense. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are completely closed off. They won't listen to any reason, to any of his witnesses, to any of the evidence, which ultimately results in him being, this, this healed man being banished from the synagogue. So on one hand, you have this man born blind and, and, and is now healed by Jesus, and he's completely open and ready to believe in Christ. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees who, despite having studied the word of God throughout their entire life from, from a young age and to where they are now they are refusing they're completely closed off to the truth of Jesus Christ now the bible what the bible says and what John has been elaborating on and really what this passage is about is that the pharisees unbelief and really anyone's unbelief is because of spiritual blindness Spiritual blindness that, in our, that is a result of our natural state, our depraved natural state. The truths of God, the glory of God, the, the good of God is hidden from us. It's, we are blinded by our sin. It, Romans chapter 3 verse 10, we all should know this as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Spiritual blindness is what, all, what chapter 9 is all about. It's why Jesus concludes this passage by saying in verse 39, he says, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. To illustrate this point, Jesus heals this man born blind, while the religious leaders, the Pharisees, who could physically see, Act and respond proportionately to their spiritual blindness. Again, they reject the truth; they reject, they refuse the truth, and even reject the evidence therein. Now, we have to remember that this ability of this this blind or this once blind man, this healed man, to conclude upon these divine truths, upon the divinity or the identity and divinity of Christ, tells us a very important thing about his spiritual condition. It tells us that God in his sovereignty and grace not only gave this man physical sight, but also spiritual sight. And that spiritual sight, being able to know and receive and desire after the truths of God, according to the rest of scripture, only happens when God has regenerated the stone heart of a sinful man and replaces it with a heart of flesh. This healed man has this great insight about Christ's identity is an example of someone who has been regenerated by God, has had spiritual eyes open and has gone through the process which Jesus calls in John chapter 3, being born again. Remember, in the doctrine of salvation... And you might ask, right, uh, well, how, how is this possible? that the, the, we, we see later on that this man believes, but he's not believed yet. He has, doesn't know Jesus yet in this conversation with the Pharisees. We have to remember in the doctrine of salvation, regeneration and conversion are not the same thing. These are two separate milestones in a believer's life. Remember, regeneration is God's work, one which he initiates in a man's heart, replacing the heart of stone and with the heart of flesh, Ezekiel chapter 36, while conversion is man's responsibility to come to God in faith, receive Christ. That's man's responsibility. Though the two happen instantaneously, one one always precedes the other. Namely, regeneration precedes faith. Meaning, until God regenerates the depraved human heart, the stone heart of sinful man, we cannot have faith in him. That's what scripture describes. That's what the scripture tells us. So a practical example of this maybe, um, say, let me use an example here, our dear brother Mark, right? Depraved sinner, likes worldly stuff. He's shaking his head as if that's still true, amen? Or not amen? But say depraved sinner Mark on Sunday hates God, refuses the things of God, is bound for hell. But then on Monday, God mysteriously, miraculously, graciously regenerates his heart, and now there is a curiosity in Mark's heart, in his mind to, okay, seek out the things of God, the truths of God. Like there's something more in this life than just you know the things he's into now. Then on whether it be a Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, Mark comes to church, he, he, he hears the gospel call, he, he repents of his sin, and he puts his faith in Jesus Christ. That's conversion. Regeneration happens mysteriously, graciously, by the sovereign hand of God, and then afterwards, faith comes, conversion. That's the process. And, and what we see in our story of this healed man is really alluding to that process. Jesus heals him, he still doesn't know who Jesus is, yet he has this divine insight about the character of Christ, his divinity and whatnot. His heart has already been regenerated, and then after he gets cast out of the temple, the synagogue, he goes, or Jesus finds him, and then Jesus calls him to believe. This man believes, that's conversion. Somewhere in between being healed physically by Christ and his conversation with the Pharisees, this man has had a a heart transplant, really. He's been regenerated, born again, hence why he can conclude on these divine truths about Christ. Now, our primary focus in our sermon this morning is to discuss our response as a church, as believers, to who this man is and his condition in between regeneration and conversion. Because in between these two milestones of this man's faith and spiritual walk with God, he is categorized as a seeker. Someone whose heart has now been open to the truths and the mind, uh, his mind can now understand the truths of God and who by the leading of the Holy Spirit and the effectual call of the Father is now seeking the truths of Christ. This man was born blind and is now a seeker. His spiritual eyes have been opened. Now, despite this reality... I understand why this term seeker-sensitive church is met with much caution and much repulsion. <laughs> because over the years, as we know, the term seeker-sensitive church has been used to describe churches who have appropriated into the church worldly things, tactics, music, language, philosophies, ideologies in hopes of attracting unbelievers to church and see them saved. At least that's a desire. And often the result of appropriating these things in, in these, in these uh, seeker-sensitive churches is that what is sacred becomes sacrilege. An, ex- an extreme case of this in recent years, I think just in this past year, as I'm sure most of you have heard Mike Todd and Transformation Church and their Easter play. It's basically a rap concert and they were singing secular songs and some ladies were pretending to be demons and talking about inappropriate things. And at one point they had a female actress on the cross and all done because it's Easter and we have hopes that we want to save unbelievers. That was their goal. That was their desire. And really, it's not just mega churches that do this. Churches who, there are churches who don't preach about hell, who don't preach about sin, don't call out sin, who try to be politically correct as to not offend the unbeliever or push them away, as to be sensitive to the feelings of the lost. And, and also there are churches who try a little too hard to be cool and to be that, that, that fashionable, relatable church. Very seeker sensitive. In an effort to and in an effort to distance ourselves from those kinds of uh, practices and kinds of churches, we often use seeker sensitive church as a label. And for conservative more conservative churches like our church, it's it's so that we're not included with them. That's them. We don't practice that. We we want to be known, we, we don't want to be known as a seeker sensitive church. But we have to understand, as ambassadors of Christ, we are called to be sensitive, not in the sense of tiptoeing around sin and hell as to not offend or 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 making sure that our talk and our what we preach is, is politically correct. Not sensitive in that light. But rather sensitive in the sense of being aware and being cognizant of those who are seeking Christ, those who show signs of regeneration because if we believe what we believe regarding the doctrine and theology of salvation that no one comes to the father unless the father himself draws him then our doctrine dictates that those who are genuinely seeking those who are asking questions those who are who are showing a willingness to come to church to learn more and to engage with the word of god those who are seeking more than just the, 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 the trappings of this world, there's a good sign that they have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, that their hearts are seeking out the things of God, and therefore it is our responsibility as believers and our privilege as disciples of Christ to disciple them, to lead them, and bring them to the point of conversion of faith. You know, say what you will about these secret sensitive church movements, and trust me, there's a lot of things to be said about that. Um, their intentions and their motives, their desire to see unbelievers saved, it's, it's the right purpose, the right motivation. But the problem is built upon wrong presuppositions. The purpose is correct, but the presupposition is incorrect, so the practice becomes incorrect. See, the presupposition of, of seeker-sensitive churches at the core, it denies the doctrine of total depravity. It misdiagnoses the human heart to say, in our depravity, we can still seek after God. Therefore, all unbelievers are seekers, and therefore we must appeal to all unbelievers, even without the work of God's, uh, even without the work of God in regenerating the human heart. So, the conclusion, if if that is the case, with, with, with enough convincing, with enough things that we do. To present the gospel in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a good light, an unbeliever's heart can be turned. Again, in this denial of total depravity and this false presupposition, seeker-sensitive churches wrongly believe that it is the church's job to turn the hearts of sinners, to change the, the mind of sinners rather than God's. But again, according to Scripture, what we see in Scripture, it is only God who can turn the sinner's heart. They will not seek the things of God until God does. Until God changes their heart. So that's the, that's the, that's the false presupposition that they have. Now, in terms of their practice, in these seeker-sensitive churches, the way to attract the world is with worldly things. We want to be more relatable. That's why we want to include this, this kind of music. Again, the practice is, the practice is to appropriate, appropriate the world, worldly things to mean Christian truths or have Christian values. We saw this, uh, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago, even with Elevation Church, right? They took uh, a Katy Perry song, Fireworks, right? You maybe know that song, Fireworks, to say that this is how God sees you. You're a firework. More like firewood meant for hell, all (laughs) right? Dad jokes, right? But the reality is, this is what these secret sensitive churches do they appropriate worldly things to mean and to have Christian truths or have Christian values, all to be relatable. But there's a major flaw in that thinking, in appropriating worldliness. You have to understand, Scripture tells us that when God opens the depraved human heart, the sinner's heart, replaces that heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and he opens it, he opens it to godly things, to that which they could not once desire. If that is the case then, why attract them with worldly things when God has opened their hearts to godly things? God did not open the worldly man's heart so that we could fill it with more worldliness. He opened it so that, we, so that they can now desire after godly things, to see the things of God as good and desire it and be saved. In their sin, the seeker has had their fill of worldly desires and stimuli. But having their hearts regenerated and opened, their their spiritual eyes made to see, they can now desire after spiritual things to what's actually good. So to lure them in via worldly things and tactics with more of what they already have defeats the purpose. You have to understand that those who are truly seeking God, who have been regenerated, will be drawn to the things of God, not to the things of the world and we have example of that in scripture in acts chapter 2 the formation of the early church the first church with the apostles it says in acts acts chapter 2 verse 42 it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as Any had need, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now the question is, why did these people convert to Christianity? Is it because the apostles were putting on a show of worldliness? Absolutely not is because the church was modeling for these unbelievers, the world, something that was not of the world. They were demonstrating a community of love, a devotion to godliness, to the word of God. They were demonstrating generosity and worship and unity, all godly things. The early church was not giving the world more of the world. They were giving a glimpse of God's kingdom. That's what attracted the lost. That's what convinced unbelievers that there was something completely and radically different about this new group, about these Christians. And really, if you've ever spoken to someone who was seeking the things of God and someone who would categorize as a seeker, you would know that their sentiment is not, man, I want more of the world. Their sentiment is, I'm done with the world. I have exhausted every avenue in my life seeking after pleasures in this life, and I want something more. I'm seeking for something more. That's the sentiment of a sincere seeker, someone who God has regenerated the heart of. So when churches say, here's the kind of music you like, here's your ideologies, your your imagery, your language, your sentimentalities just wrapped up in a Christian package... And totally not offensive, by the way. What they're really saying is, listen, you can continue loving the world while you love Christ. That's the message. What we see in Scripture, the Apostle John writes in his, in his letter, at 1 John chapter 2, he says, verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. It's very clear. He's very clear in that passage. love of the world is a good sign that the love of God is not in a man, not in a person. Meaning that maybe their hearts have not yet been opened. Maybe their hearts have yet to be regenerated. But as believers we are called to be seeker sensitive in a biblical way. Sensitive to those around us who who we can tell by evidence, by, their, by by evidence in their the fruit in their life that they are desiring for something more, longing for something more. That they are are are, are, are needing of something more. And by just by the that fruit, it is on us as believers. To, be, to, 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 to reach out, to disciple these individuals, these seekers. Now the question is, how do we actually be a biblical, seeker-sensitive church? Not like what we see in, in some of these other churches, these mega-churches and whatnot. How do we become a biblical, seeker-sensitive church? First and foremost, we must pray for God to open hearts pray for God to open hearts. If we believe that it is only God who can open the hearts of depraved men, who, who can bring into, to, into, into the heart of a depraved man a heart of flesh, replacing the stone heart, then we must intercede on their behalf. If we know the God who can do that, who can regenerate the heart, we must intercede on the sinner's on the sinner's behalf. Stand in the gap, pleading for mercy on their behalf. It's what, it's, I I, I love this, the imagery that we get in Ezekiel chapter 37 with the the, the valley of dry bones. It's it's this great picture of of God's regenerative work, right? There's these dead, dry bones in this valley and then God quickens them to new life with his Holy Spirit. It's a great passage, Ezekiel chapter 37 right after Ezekiel chapter 36 when he talks about all this, this work of regeneration. But look at Ezekiel chapter 37 verse 9. This is what, this is what God tells to the prophet Ezekiel. He said, uh, the, it says verse 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breath on these slain, that they may live. What we're seeing here is a picture of intercession for these dead bones. God is telling the prophet Ezekiel to call forth new life into these dead bones. He's called to intercede in the same way we are called to intercede for those who are dead in their sin. To ask the Holy Spirit to fall upon darkened hearts and quicken them to new life. Listen, the battle for people's salvation doesn't start at the streets at our workplaces. It doesn't start in, in, in our schools when we're already in the midst of a conversation with them. The battle for people's salvation starts on our knees in our rooms pleading that God would regenerate hearts. That's where it starts. Second, in 2 Corinthians, in Second Corinthians chapter 10, Verse 3 to 4, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's what prayer is a weapon of war that destroys these, these entrenched places and fortresses in the lives of people, in the lives of sinners. Listen. If you have unbelievers as relatives, as friends, if your kids are not saved, fight for them. Fight for them in prayer. Go to war for them in prayer. And our hope... In, in, in all of this is that God hears our prayers, our intercessions for the lost, because the Bible tells us that God actually delights in saving people. He desires it. He delights in seeing the lost come and be found, the, the blind coming to see. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 4 says First of all, then I urge that supplications and prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires to see people saved delights in it. And and if you're one of those brothers or sisters who are sitting there and thinking, well, why pray? God is sovereign anyways, right? He'll he'll save people anyways. Oh, you foolish brother. (laughs) Do not know that we pray not in spite of God's sovereignty, but because God is sovereign. We pray because we believe that in His sovereignty, God uses our prayers in His work of salvation. We pray with the privilege of knowing our prayers are heard by a loving Heavenly Father and is used to open the hearts of depraved men. We pray because we know that regardless of how depraved a sinner is, how wretched a man is, regardless of what crime or act they have done in the, in the riches of God's grace, in his sovereign work, he can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. As one pastor put it, that is a greater miracle than the creation of this universe. That's the reality of it, the joy of it, the glory of it. You want to be a a biblical, seeker-sensitive church, then we must pray for God to open hearts, to regenerate hearts, that those who are sinners would come to know the truth and be set free. Secondly. To be a biblical, seeker-sensitive church, we, we must pursue those who are sincerely seeking. Pursue those who are sincerely seeking. What I love about this passage is that after this man gets kicked out from the synagogue, it says in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Here is the, this regenerated man, this man who was just healed, still unknowing of the truth of who Christ is, yet, yet apparently seeking or has some insight and he's kicked out of the synagogue and it is Jesus who finds him, goes to him, actively pursues him. Similarly, if, if, unbelievers, if there are unbelievers in our lives who show signs of regeneration, we must pursue them. And that pursuit looks like discipleship. Walking through scripture, exposing them to the truths of, of the word of God. Exposing them to Christian fellowship, bringing them to church. Showing them the goodness of our God through our community, through, the, through God's word. It's, it's, we have example of this as well in, in the book of Acts, in the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. The Holy Spirit leads Philip to this chariot on the side of the road where this, this Ethiopian guy is reading through the scroll of Isaiah and then says in Acts chapter 8, verse 31, this man says, how can I, uh, how, how, how can I understand? He's talking about how can I uh, understand what's in the this, this scroll of Isaiah? How can I, unless someone guides me and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Let me ask a question. Was this Ethiopian guy seeking God? Yes or no? Absolutely. He's on the side of this road and he wants to understand the scroll of Isaiah, but he has no one to explain it to him. So at some point on his journey, God has regenerated his heart and now he's had, he has the scroll of Isaiah in front of him and he's wanting to understand, wanting to know but all this means, and that's why the Holy Spirit brings Philip to him. And it says in verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Philip saw that this man was seeking and explained the gospel. To him, the result, as we know in that story, is that this man says, "Hey, there's some water here. I believe now. Get, you know, get me baptized." Sometimes all it takes for sinner for for seekers to come to faith is someone to sit down and explain the gospel to them. That's what discipleship is. You're just sitting down with an individual and explaining to them the truths of God. And all of us are called to not just be disciples, but make disciples. And and oftentimes, I think we we think it's, it's hard. How do I become a disciple maker? How do I disciple people? But really, all it is, where it starts is you passing down what God has been growing in you, what God has been teaching you through his word, you're just transferring that to another individual. You're teaching them what God has been growing in you. That's, that's, how, that's how we are to pursue seekers. We see another example of, of this pursuit and how that looks like with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Paul is in this passage describing how he actively pursues different kinds of people on his missionary work to share the gospel to them. And, and you, might, you, know, you might ask, you know, after reading that passage, isn't, isn't, isn't this what these secret sensitive churches are doing? They're, they're becoming relatable to these people groups and to the world? There's a great difference, however, in what Paul is doing in this passage and what secret-sensitive churches are doing. Paul, as a missionary, is making himself relatable. He's not making the church relatable. He's not changing doctrines and practices just to appease sinners. He is coming to a level where he can communicate the gospel to unbelievers. In a way that, as he mentioned, does not compromise the law of Christ, in a way that doesn't compromise the truths of God, he's not compromising values and doctrines and the purpose of the church, just to be relatable to, uh, just to be relatable and to, to reach unbelievers. He's making himself relatable, and even in that, even in that change, again, he says. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Meaning, he's not becoming relatable to the lost by acting like the lost. He's not becoming relatable to the sinful world by becoming sinful himself. That's far from it, far from the truth. He's simply coming to the world's level in humility, explaining the gospel in a way for people, groups to understand. And, we, and, and I, I believe this is very specific to, to the call of missionaries. A great missionary of the faith is James Hudson Taylor. And I've spoken about this in the past. Before his time, missionaries would go out to different parts of, of the world and they would expect for people to, to dress like them, to speak like them, in order for them to be able to come into the church. So if you had a missionary go to India, for example, they would expect Indians to dress like Westerners and speak English so that they would hear the gospel in churches. But James Hudson Taylor sort of pioneered this mentality of, no, I'm going to their country, therefore I'm going to dress like them, I'm going to learn their language so I can communicate the gospel in their tongue. That's what Paul is doing here. He's going to them, to the people. Again, it is our call as as believers to be sensitive to those who are seeking Christ. To those who are seeking to know God. To be able to communicate and relate the gospel, the truths of God to them in a way that they can understand, and all of that is in in this effort to pursue them, just as Christ pursues. Part of this pursuit for the seeker is coming through their level; it's progressively unpacking the truths of the Word of God, not just jump, not just dumping the doctrines of grace on them. And, and deeper truths. And so we have to understand that we start from spiritual milk and work our way up to the meat of the faith, of doctrines. So, if we want to be a biblical seeking, a biblical seeker sensitive church, we must pursue those who are sincerely seeking, those who are demonstrating fruit of regeneration and disciple. Them. Lastly, as we just close up our time here, if we want to be a biblical. seeker-sensitive church, we must present the glory of Christ alone. I love what our passage says and how, how Christ calls this man to believe in him. Verse 35, again, Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. And this man, just from that simple response, said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Very simple. There's no lights, there is no glitter, there's no smoke machine. Jesus said, I am he. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about a similar thing. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, he says, And I, when I came to you, brothers Paul, when he came to the Corinthian church, just presented the gospel as is, And he talks about being in fear and trembling and being in weaknesses in in weakness. Because historically speaking, Paul, at least in person, was not a good speaker. In his writing, he was very strong. But in person, he was not a good speaker. But it was even through that weakness, it demonstrated the power of God, the truth of God. glory of Christ and him crucified. You know, I think it is the hubris of man to think that we can present the gospel in a better light than Christ himself. It is the pride of man to think that we can make the gospel even more beautiful than the Savior himself. More appealing than the story of the holy God coming down in the form of man to save undeserving sinners. How can we add to that? You know, there are, Christianity, the church, is, is growing in parts of the world where, where they don't have lights and stages and great-sounding worship teams and all these programs to attract unbelievers. Christianity is growing in parts of the world where all they have is to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. See, when people are thirsty, you don't need to sell them water. You just need to point to where it is. You don't need to tell them, you're thirsty? Well, I have this great drink. It'll quench your thirst. It's amazing. You've never tasted anything like it. All you have to do is say, it's over here. Similarly, when the sinner has been regenerated and made to see their need for a Savior, you don't need to sell the Savior. You just need to point where He can be found. You must present the glory of Christ alone. There's no greater story than the gospel no higher thought no loftier idea no glory, no other glorious revelation known to man than the good news of Jesus God and the good news of Jesus Christ the holy god coming to save sinners as we close the invitation for those who are listening to my voice and find themselves in that category of seeking Something has changed in your heart. You don't know what it is, but it seems as though you, you want to know more about God. You want to know what's better out there than what we see simply in the world, what we have from the world. If that's you this morning, and you are seeking, understand that Christ is pursuing in your seeking, Christ is pursuing you and desires you to come to have faith in him. Come to know that your sins, which have separated you from a holy God, has been paid for, has been dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that by faith, simple reliance and trust in Jesus himself, you can have, you can have forgiveness And a right relationship with God the Father. You are seeking Him this morning, Christ is pursuing. Do not deny the Holy Spirit. Turn to Him today. Let today be a day of salvation for you. For those who are found, again, the call for us this morning is to be a seeker sensitive church, not appropriating the things of the world to have Christian values or Christian truths or trying to be more relatable by being more worldly. thats not, again, the point of this sermon is not that. It's to be sensitive to those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, to be sensitive to those who are genuinely seeking the things of God, the truths of God, to walk with them, to disciple them, to lead them to the point of conversion so that they would have faith in Jesus Christ. Our desire is to see those whom God has regenerated, whom the Holy Spirit has quickened to new life, come to know who their Savior is. Let's pray. O gracious God and Heavenly Father, first and foremost we want to praise you and thank you for working in our own hearts because just like this man in this story, just like the Pharisees we were born blind born blind to your truths born blind to your goodness to your will and purposes for our lives Yet out of your great mercy and grace, out of your sovereignty, you replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. And we thank you, O oh Lord, because this is the greatest delight, this is the greatest joy and hope that we can have. Despite us not deserving, us not earning your grace Your goodness. You bestow on us your love. And forgiveness. So I pray, O God, that we would be reminded of the joy of our salvation. In the newness of life that you have called us to. In the privilege of it. Of being called your own. And the great joy of being brought out of darkness into your marvelous light. To know that, to know and to taste and see that you are good. God, we know that it's all from you, and we praise you, glorious God. At the same time, oh God, I pray for those who are seeking those who you have regenerated yet have yet to come to believe, to have faith. Oh God, I pray that you would use your church, that you would use Plus Life to propagate your good news, to be disciple makers, oh God, to seek out those who are seeking, to pursue those who you are pursuing so that we might Bring them home, oh God, to you. Lord, help us. Give us boldness. Give us confidence. Confidence in knowing that our sovereign God can and does change the hearts of sinners. Lord, help us in this. Because like in everything else, we cannot do this on our own. We need you, Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in these things and that, God, we would live up to be what our vision is as a church, to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would see, God, unbelievers coming to faith in our midst, oh God. we would see more baptisms, oh God, of, of people declaring their, their confession of faith in this act of obedience. Oh God, help us as a church. Even now, O oh God, I pray that you'd bring to our minds and our hearts people in our vicinity, our family, our, our, our friends, our co-workers, our schoolmates, that you have been working on that you have been working in. I pray that you'd bring them to our minds, to our hearts, that we might go to them, reach out to them even today to sit down with them, just as Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch, and and unpack for them the good news of Jesus Christ. Lead us, Holy Spirit, empower us, so that we might bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ. In whom we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.